Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. A very special welcome to anybody who's new here, you are most welcome, and a heartfelt thank you to all returning listeners. If you are new, I'm Meg and based in London in the UK. In my podcast series, I talk about various strands of my creative and making practice, both what I make, but also why and how I make, and particularly how I juggle a love of using my hands and materials with an awareness of the environment and ethical issues. You can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with an underscore between each word. And anything I mention on the podcast will also be in the show notes, which you can find at mrsmcuriositycabinet.com. So how's life been treating you? Are you also juggling a real mix of feelings and challenges as a most bizarre year slowly draws to an end? It's fair to say the last two months have not really gone to plan here. In an already odd stop-start year, October and November were a complete write-off. Last month, I managed a spectacular trio of poor luck. My back went into spasm for the best part of a fortnight. I sprained my ankle and Dante, our beloved old Moggy and occasional star of the podcast, had a stroke and had to be put to sleep. True to form, I tried to power on from the physical and emotional bruises and I consoled myself with the thought that the end was swift for Dante that we'd shared nine and a half delightful years and that both Mr M and I were allowed to be with him at the end, a luxury that many have not had with their human loved ones in this year of COVID-19. For all my efforts and will to carry on though, my body had other ideas. A full-on fibromyalgia flare-up meant aching limbs, clumsy fingers, an achy brain and a concentration span shorter than that of the average toddler. I therefore dithered about podcasting. What if anything would I have to share? Not just a dearth of making, or rather snippets of random work, but also no musings of any real merit, barely even a tangle of nascent ideas. And then there's a question, is it worth even putting that out there? I mean, we live in a world of serious data overload, should I be adding to it? Even though I had precious little of substance to share and was worried about taking up listeners' time and mental bandwidth for no reason, I actually really wanted to podcast because I fancied having a chat. As many of you know, I am mostly a pretty self-contained person, but I am definitely missing good company. Partly due to the loss of my feline companion, but mostly down to the accumulated lack of contact with friends this year. And then there's the fact that here in the UK, much like elsewhere, we are understandably weary from bouncing in and out of various stages of lockdown and restrictions. In light of my dithering about whether to podcast or not, I asked listeners on Instagram whether they would fancy a random, messy, rambling episode rather than my normal fare. The response was a resounding yes, which was of course lovely to hear, and was mostly because many of you are also juggling a messy, random, tumultuous reality. So I thought I would come and have a chat and try to string something coherent together, not least of all because I find the act of trying to articulate ideas, even if it involves going round in circles and off on tangents, actually helps me hone in on the issues, concerns, dilemmas that are on my mind. So I hope you've got some kind of making to hand and a drink of your choice. (music) 
Knitting has been pretty infrequent these past few weeks. There's been some finishing up of projects, button bands mostly, but I've not really sunk my teeth into a significant new knit. It's not that there aren't patterns I long to knit, or even that I've reached peak cardigan in my wardrobe. In fact, after the unexpected delight in my all-over colour Tanach cardigan, I actually have various stranded colourwork patterns in mind that I'm tempted to cast on, as I fancy a colourful double layer to help keep the damp winter chill at bay. But I've been dithering about colours. I love how some people put together amazing colour combinations with joyous abandon. Not me. I pussyfoot around colour combos and shilly-shally between options. It's not really due to a lack of any technical knowledge. I understand colour theory and optical mixing. I know the advice about taking a black and white photo to check if there is enough contrast. Advice I usually ignore, as I generally prefer low contrast colour work that's more akin to a damask weave or a flocked wallpaper. It's not even that I lack inspiration. A couple of patterns on my wish list, like the Animore cardigan, or Maggie Waistcoat from Susan Crawford's latest book, Evolution, would definitely lend themselves to colours inspired by Sonia Delaunay's textiles. Maybe swapping out the black for something like a dark Shetland black-brown. So I've been pulling out the shade cards and the Shetland wool in my wool pantry on a number of occasions and put together slightly earthier versions of my Delaunay inspiration. And then I dither. Before long, I'm swapping out the high-contrast colours and replacing them with low-contrast ones. And I end up with colours that look more like the inside of a shell or a Morandi painting than the aesthetically stunning Art Deco and Modernist inspiration I love so much. And being one of life's overthinkers, I wonder and worry. Why is it that I love colour in art and nature, but not in my hands, clothes or home? Is my love of shades of brown and the occasional muted autumnal colour a sign of depression? Should I be worried about this? What is colour even? And what does it do to our brains? Why do combinations of colours, even ones I truly love, exhaust my fibromyalgia-racked sensory system? How do I strike a balance between enough colour stimulation to satisfy my psychological and aesthetic wants, but not so much it causes sensory overwhelm and fatigue? Of course, there is absolutely no reason why I should like highly coloured stranded knitwork. And quite frankly, who cares what colours I wear? But that doesn't stop my overactive, curious, exhausted, fretty brain from mulling over the issue and researching. Partly because I just like to understand myself, but mostly because the reality of living with fibromyalgia is that we're always looking for ways, no matter how small, to alleviate symptoms and make life just that little bit easier. Is my colour palette, with its glorious range of natural sheep browns and fawns, an early warning signal for depression, as some people have occasionally very gently and kindly inquired? Although I don't think that's the case, as somebody living with chronic pain, I am very alert to the issue of depression, so I've been researching what, if any, psychological evidence there is between colour, brain activity and depression. And even if I'm not depressed, is there anything in my reading about how the brain works that may be of help to my foggy fibro brain? Is there anything that helps explain why colours exhaust me and how to ease that? As I pull out and rearrange my selection of Jameson and Smith and Jameson of Shetland's browns and rusts, oranges and corals, berries and ochres, 
I also try to compile what I've gleaned about the brain's responses to optical stimuli and colours. I try to make sense of the tangle of my understanding of the physics of colour, brainwaves' responses to it, and the complex psychology of it, made more complex by the mix of physiological, social and cultural influences. Although researching the workings of colour and the brain has been fascinating, mind-blowing and exhausting in equal part, I think it's slowly dawning on me that maybe I'm better served by taking a longitudinal view of the issue. What can I deduce based on my knowledge of history, as well as my own use of traditional botanical and earth pigments, rather than dwelling purely on the fractured picture from contemporary neurological research? Humans have experienced and responded to visual stimuli, including colour, as long as we've existed. For much of humankind's development, the palette we lived with were the colours of nature, of the raw materials we used to feed, clothe and house us. As a species, we also learnt how to create colour from minerals, plants and animals that surround us. But with materials often being limited by geography or season, and the processes being laborious and time-consuming, for much of human existence, applied colour was relatively rare typically used to display power and wealth, or in the context of the religious or spiritual. From cave paintings that try to grasp the mystery of the world and what lay beyond, to the precious colours in places of worship. The prevalence of applied colour started to change relatively late in the history of mankind. In Europe at least, it initially changed with colonialism, with access to appropriated raw materials and occupied workforces and even more so with industrialisation. But even well into the 19th century, when inks, dyes and paints could be produced and applied at greater speed, they were still mostly derived from naturally occurring colour sources. And although the first synthetic dye, which was only inadvertently developed in 1856, prompted a rush of development of synthetic colours, life would probably not have involved the technicolour world we know today for several more generations. Why? Simply due to the fact that people had fewer objects, no round-the-clock media, and even something as simple as not enjoying an abundance of light at the flick of a switch. Humans and their nervous systems lived for millennia with a colour palette of the natural world around them, with a few dashes of man-made colour from natural resources. And although the natural world's colour palette would have varied across the planet, that palette would evolve during the seasons with the natural life cycles of animals and plants, providing human senses with lulls and periods of recuperation. And then in the last 50 to 150 years, i.e. in two to six generations, our senses have suddenly been exposed to ever greater visual and colour stimulation, to say nothing of sounds and artificial smells. In that context, it's almost surprising that more of us don't experience sensory overload from colour even on a good day, let alone when something goes awry in the body. Perhaps, therefore, the question I should be asking myself is not, is there something wrong with me for liking certain colours but not wanting to live with them in practice? But rather, how much colour stimulation has a human nervous system evolved to cope with? And how much colour is too much for it? I think this perspective is providing me with a degree of comfort, or rather calm. That said, delving into the physics and neurology of colour is also offering me some clues 
and possibly an understanding of my response to colour. And both perspectives together are definitely helping me to make peace with my limited colour palette. My general attraction to and enjoyment of chocolate, greyish and murrit browns makes sense from a pure physics perspective. While these natural shades are composites of different colours, they are obviously darker shades. On the basis that white reflects light back and black absorbs it, dark browns and dark greys reflect only a limited amount of light waves and therefore provide less stimulation to weary eyes and brain. And according to various studies into the usage of colour in hospital settings, red and orange toned wards appear to be beneficial to well-being. Exposure to these colours stimulate patients relatively more than blue and green wards relax patients. This mild stimulation appears to improve well-being, both in terms of faster recovery times and a need for less pain medication. So maybe with my attraction to madders, rusts and dirty pinks, I'm not only expressing an aesthetic preference, I'm also actually giving my body and senses the right amount of stimulation it needs to make the best of a suboptimal situation. So what decisions have I reached for my forthcoming colourwork project, Susan Crawford's Maggie Waistcoat? I think I've settled on the following Jameson and Smith colours. Number four, a muted dark brown. Number 202, a warm off-white. Number 122, which is a slightly more muted version of orange and rust than the mighty FC38. Number three, a muted warm off-neutral with a hint of dappled earthy apricot. For fans of flowers, imagine an earthy take on the Dahlia Café Royal or a heathered version of the rose champagne moment. And unusually for me, I'm also considering adding the merest dash of FC62 as a complementary colour, a soft pale teal cum duck egg blue. The end result is something a lot more muted than the original Sonia Delaunay inspiration I had in mind, but probably more appropriate for a waistcoat that will almost certainly live under a dark cardigan. And excitingly also my first all over colour work project. Sewing has involved frustrations, challenges and well-trodden ground in recent months. My bra making hit the buffers due to an unexpected development. When lockdown eased over the summer, I started going swimming to help bring some mental calm and prevent a slide into depression. I hadn't swum for well over a decade, so I just poodled up and down in the slow lane, being overtaken by silver-haired 60 and 70-year-olds. I was so focused on swimming purely as something I was doing for my head that it caught me totally unaware that my body was also changing. Suddenly, the bra twirls I had laboured over no longer fit. And it wasn't just that I couldn't fill the cups. The underbust bands were too loose and offered no support. Now, I know many would be excited at the prospect of their body changing due to exercise, but my initial response was crumbs. I need to go back to the drawing board with the bra twirls. And quite frankly, is it even worth doing so until my rib circumference hits a plateau? So before I embarked on phase two of the bra twirls and the other big challenge, a winter coat, I instead focused on perfecting and simplifying the Merchants and Mills Francine top, 
one of only two long sleeve top patterns in my armoury. One of the changes was tweaking the full bicep on the sleeve slightly to allow for a little more space, but mostly I focused on simplifying the collar. The Francine design is based on a fisherman's top. It has a neckline that can be closed with one button or can be worn open as a v-neck. The v-neck design and its facing end in a simple collar that is very attractive but an absolute pain to sew. Mostly because the pattern involves cutting a slit down the centre of the fabric and then seaming the outer fabric and facing at about 2mm or less than an eighth of an inch from the cut line and then grading it out at the collar. By eliminating the collar altogether it's possible after careful pinning to sew front and facing fabrics together and then cut the central line and flip the whole thing inside out. I generally revisit familiar patterns rather than trying lots of different ones as it allows me to build a small collection of reliable patterns that work together in various formats, for example as tops, dresses, overshirts and even casual jackets. This allows me to achieve a workable, reasonably future-proofed wardrobe. But I'm also simplifying patterns because paired back ones are a much more flexible canvas for various interpretations. I love how I can make my go-to skirts, dresses and tops in a wide range of fabrics and they look both good and very different. And by pairing them back to a basic canvas, I have the freedom to add another layer to them, in particular texture through fabric of my own making, i.e. weaving. I know that some would balk at this idea. Why would I possibly want to take my slow sewing and slow it down even more by weaving some of the fabric? That probably sounds absolutely barking to modern ears. First up, I want to do this precisely because it slows down my making. I love fibre-based materials and I'm highly conscious that it would be so easy to make considerably more than I need just because I enjoy the feeling of the materials and the process of working with them. So making some of the cloth for my sewing actively slows that process and becomes an almost inbuilt deterrent to undue excess. Another reason is because incorporating handwoven cloth with factory produced fabric will allow me to add texture which excites me a lot more than colour. Also, playing with lines and proportions through the introduction of texture should allow me to turn tried and tested patterns into pieces of wearable art, as daft or presumptuous as that might sound. Maybe it's been the lack of access to exhibitions this year, or maybe it's because part of my brain is increasingly in a pottery sculptural mode, but I definitely have an urge to explore the boundary and interaction between craft and art in my various forms of making. A third reason is that some of my older handmade garments are starting to perish at the seams. Although I can patch them for a while, I'll ultimately end up with smaller panels of recovered fabric that, with the addition of other cloth, I could turn into new garments. And framing such recycled material with fabric I've woven myself seems like a splendid way to emphasise how much I appreciate recovered cloth. The final reason for wanting to add handwoven fabric to my garments is arguably the messiest, most tangled one. That is an active desire to disrupt. 
there is a seething stroppiness in me that has probably been growing for some time, but I think lots of things this year have brought it to a head. I've got to the stage that the majority of my clothes are me made, and to most people who aren't knitters or sewers, they probably don't look handmade. They aren't obviously evidence of my determination, years of skill building, hours of considered work and choices, or growing agency. And I suppose I actually want them to be. Not to elicit praise or attention, but rather to disrupt some of the expectations and attitudes that have become very apparent this year, and to be frank, bother me more and more. COVID-19 has disrupted pretty much everything we consider normal. It's been a pain in the proverbial and utterly frustrating. But for all its awfulness and the worry, there have also been some sparks of positivity. Individuals, communities and independent businesses thinking on their feet and working in a different way. Not just to salvage something economically from the rubbish year, but as a way of finding some meaning and shared joy and value despite all of the restrictions and inconveniences. But for every uplifting example, there have been many more knee-jerk responses along the lines of, that's not possible, that's not how we've always done it, I couldn't possibly do that, to say nothing of the complete lack of imagination amongst the powers that be to think beyond existing paradigms of the market will fix it, loans, big business and centralised solutions, and contracts for mates. This podcast is not a party political, and I know from family and friends in other countries that national and local governments around the world are muddling through and struggling to manage this pandemic as best they know how. My ranting, simmering rage and desire disrupt are not due to the restrictions or even the mistakes that governments have made when learning on the hoof, but rather because I'm seething at the prevailing lack of desire or inclination amongst certain acquaintances in my local community and at government level to conceive of a different way of approaching practical needs and social wants at a time when a virus has torn up the rule book, suspended business as usual and de facto dislodged some major social and economic holy cows. I mean, if governments are effectively putting swathes of workers on public payroll with admittedly less than perfect support schemes, why not start re-envisioning how economies, infrastructure, the food industry, services, public spaces might work? Because let's be honest, they are not working for most of us and they are certainly not working for the planet and future generations. And imagining different approaches is not the sole preserve of central government or even local ones. Businesses and communities have a role to play too. So why don't we, at all levels, use this unwanted inflection point as an opportunity to create and nurture conditions that not only allow us to discover our individual and collective agency, but encourage, enable and empower us to use it? I told you this episode would be tangled and messy. I know that weaving some of my own cloth and creating garments that blur the lines between dress and art changes precious little, but I'm exhausted by the comfortable inertia and unquestioning business-as-usual mentality, and I want my clothes, just as my way of going about life, to be a visible cue to nudge ideas, sow seeds about agency, the preciousness of resources, and humans' imaginative potential to rework what doesn't serve us, in a way that can both meet practical and psychological needs. 
So I've started working towards my first cloth. And when I say I started, I mean the very first steps as I'm spinning some of the weft yarn. For anybody unfamiliar with weaving, the warp are the threads that determine the length of a piece of cloth, so the vertical grain lines. The weft are the horizontal threads that are woven from one selvage to another selvage and back again. I am a rather ad hoc spinner. Generally I sit down at the wheel when things aren't going to plan or life tosses me a curved ball. Needless to say there's been considerably more spinning this year than in previous years. I actually took up spinning shortly before I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, when I was so ill that I had to give up pottery. I missed the dynamic of throwing so much that I looked for a manageable alternative, and spinning instantly resonated. The momentum of the wheel, the subtle balance between strength and lightness and touch, and the conversation between fingers, material and form. The fibre I'm spinning for a partially me-woven garment is a rather luxurious John Arban top from its cocktail range. Top is a fibre preparation that involves carding and then combing fibre into a long ribbon of beautifully aligned fibres. John Arban's cocktail fibre is a blend of 60% Corydell, 30% alpaca and 10% silk. As it was a limited edition, it is alas no longer available. Apart from its colour, which is about 85% deep taupe brown, 10% warm rosy rust and 5% of silver white from the silk, this is definitely unlike most of the blends I would normally knit with due to its sleek softness. Not so good for lofty woolly knits, but hopefully perfect for draping cloth. The top had been in my fibre pantry for a couple of years because I considered it too beautiful to be fudged up on my still limited spinning skills, but also because I was wary of spinning alpaca and silk, or rather I didn't think I liked spinning them. Early on in my spinning I worked with a braid of merino alpaca and silk and it was a horrible experience. It was a fight from start to finish and the alpaca felt more like a brillo pad than enticing fibre. But the John Arban top has been proof once again that not all fibre is created equal, nor even fibre from the same breed. Pretty much as soon as I had the fibre on the bobbin, it moved like velvet between my fingers. Very quickly I was in the flow, and I'd laid down a length of spun yarn across the width of the bobbin. Two things dawned on me while weaving the cocktail blend. First, I was not using my preferred long backward draw method of drafting, but the short forward one I had initially learnt and quickly dropped as I found it both painful on the hands and tedious. Drafting is the action by which you draw a few strand of fibres out of the bunch of fibre just before letting the spin created by the wheel or spindle into them to create the yarn. As I generally spin airy, carded clouds of fibres for woolen spun yarns, I prefer the more relaxed, expansive method of the long backward draw, which is exactly what it sounds like. There is also a short backward draw and a short forward draw, both of which involve the non-drafting hand exercising more control over the yarn as the spin goes into it, and almost compressing the air out of it. In much of my daily life, I look for ways to take the pressure off my hands, arms, wrists and shoulders, so it's no surprise that I generally favour techniques that are less laboured and intense, like the long backward draw. So I was amazed to see I was using the short forward one, and I can't remember it being a conscious choice. 
If anything, I think the blend and preparation of this fibre actually dictated it. And for all the control involved in the short forward drafting method, my hands didn't feel tense like I remember from my early days of spinning. I often hear the expression, the wool fibre or fabric will tell me what it wants to be. I don't really go in for this way of thinking, but I do believe that the more we work with materials and the more we become attuned to their specific characteristics, the more they direct us how to work with them. Another thing I realised whilst inchworming fibre out of the top and yarn onto the bobbin is that maybe lulls in practice can actually be useful. I'm generally scared of prolonged periods away from a craft, like my current limited time at the pottery wheel due to my back injury, mostly because I'm scared of losing the muscle memory, knack or feel of a material. Although obviously it's beneficial to practice regularly, I'm starting to realise that breaks can act as a healthy reset. They result in us looking and listening with fresh senses to material and approaching a process in a way that is both fresh but rooted in experience. I'm not sure if that makes sense. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that I'm learning to trust that lulls create time and space for practice to bed down into experience. And this means that when we do pick up our tools again, we can work in a way that feels intuitive rather than simply being on autopilot. I reckon that's probably enough of me rambling. I realise that this podcast has involved lots of tangents about why I'm making, or dithering about making, rather than the nuts and bolts of projects. But hopefully it offered at least some sense of company if nothing else. Because just coming here and trying to order my thoughts has certainly made me feel like I'm enjoying the company of friends. So until the next time, I hope you enjoy many pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be. 